First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't generate amusing holiday cards, but it will personalize career paths for your people and let you know which suppliers are best so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real world results. That's SAP Business AI. So a comedy is in a very strange place. People are afraid to kind of let it rip. A lot of my friends are trying to figure out what, what can you joke about when the world is constantly falling apart in your hands, like, uh, you know, trying to pick up a, a sandcastle. I'm your host, Casey Finey, and this is Creative Conversation, a Fast Company podcast. I feel like ever since 2016, and we all know what happened in 2016, satire has been in this really weird space. It's like, how can you make satire of reality when reality itself is stranger than fiction? And when that reality feels just flat out depressing, is anyone in the mood to laugh? It's something writer and director Adam McKay certainly thought about when making Don't Look Up. Adam's latest film stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence as a pair of astronomers who are desperately trying to alert the government and the whole world, really, that a comet is about to end life on Earth as we know it. What follows is the kind of political and societal farce that doesn't feel like much of a stretch, to be honest. In our conversation, Adam explains the delicate dance of making comedy and satire today and the creative freedom in subverting your expectations. Awesome. So, Adam, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it as well. Yeah. So, you know, I want to start because I know your career has such a strong foundation in comedy. I mean, you were one of the original members of the Upright Citizens Brigade. You were a head writer for SNL. You co-founded Funny or Die. And of course, that's not even getting into all your hit films like Step Brothers, Anchorman, Talladega Nights. And so I just want to start the conversation by asking, what's at the root of your connection with comedy? You know, I, I just ever since I was a little kid, I've just loved comedy. I My mom is very funny and my dad loves comedy and has a great, generous laugh. Hmm. Um, so I remember as a kid, even, you know, this is back in the early 70s, watching like the Three Stooges, which I don't even know if they even play the Three Stooges anymore, but it was like, it was punk rock comedy. It was <laughs> them hitting each other in the head with ball peen hammers. And I, as a little kid, especially a little boy, you just respond to it. And from that moment on, it just comedy was always a major part of my life. I was lucky enough to grow up when uh, Monty Python was was kind of getting big and Steve Martin and Saturday Night Live hit. I remember Eddie Murphy was like a god to me. So <laughs> I, I've just always loved to laugh. I've loved to joke around. Um, to me, good, solid, deep laughs are just uh, as good as anything in life. I love that. And that's I, I'm so glad that you brought up, you know, all these classics like the Three Stooges and Monty Python and, of course, you know, the old school cast of SNL. And because I wanted to ask, I mean, from your perspective, both as like a fan and now, you know, someone whose career has been, you know, kind of rooted in, in comedy. I mean, how have you seen comedy evolve in in culture? <laughs> well, comedy <laughs> is in a very tricky spot right now, but I, I don't think it's just comedy. 
I would say culture in general is a bit confused right now. It it, it seems to be caught between two eras. I refer to kind of the previous era that we came out of. I call it the the 97. Uh, 1997 was kind of the peak of that previous era where things were relatively stable. They shut down the debt clock. Yeah, we had scandals from Clinton. There was rising income inequality, but it wasn't berserk at that point. Government still could occasionally fix some things. And now we're now, which is... is, (laughs) How would you describe now? um, I would call it... uh, Sort of, I, I described Nick Bertel, the composer of for Don't Look Up, our most recent movie, wrote a jazz piece that I describe as like a jazz band with lead poisoning playing on the Hindenburg. And, <laughs> and that's sort of what now feels like everything's broken. All the institutions are collapsing. Uh, we're all fractured. We have this crazy slot machine uh, dressed up as a means of communication in social media. And everything's happening about 20 times too fast. And people are shrieking at each other like hyenas. So uh, <laughs> that's how I would describe now. So I think culture is catching up to this moment and trying to figure out what the hell's going on? And that includes comedy. So a, a comedy is in a very strange place. People are afraid to kind of let it rip. Uh, I think everyone's second and third guessing themselves. I think you have one group that just wants to antagonize and kind of go at the darkest instincts and you know call it free speech and free thinking, but it's just mm-hmm. straight up antagonism and And then you have the traditional comics like myself who are from that dividing line. A lot of my friends are are trying to figure out what what can you joke about when the world is constantly falling apart in your hands, like, you know, trying to pick up a, a sandcastle. Given all of that, I mean, like, like, what is your creative approach to comedy? Because I know that, you know, with with the films that I've mentioned before and, you know, your your latest film, Don't Look Up, I mean, it's the it's two it's two very different sides of comedy in a way and so i just i'd love to hear how just your creative approach to creating these comedic films i i i think a lot of comedy is based on collective experience and truths and mm-hmm. and i think there's people that would say oh well we all have different truths i actually don't really think our truths are as different as we sometimes act let on or profess mm. i do think there's an animal instinct inside of all of us that can sense when something's true and i think if you look at the 90s into the 2000s uh, that consensus experience was a little more vivid was a little clearer it, it, it wasn't the same for everyone it doesn't mean you can't make offensive jokes. Of course you can. You can you can say things that aren't other people's truths. That can happen. But in general, the consensus reality was a little clearer. Um, so, you know, with Will Ferrell and I, we really enjoyed making fun of bogus white guy culture. That was mm-hmm. what made us laugh, entitled white guy culture. And our <laughs> first three, three movies that we did, we jokingly called the mediocre white guy trilogy. Um, and, <laughs> and by that, I mean, 
you know, bankers, white guy bankers right. who act like they figured out the world, but know absolutely nothing. Uh, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan giving a speech, but then if you look down at his feet, literally, this is true. There were marks on the ground showing him where to stand, like an actor. Oh, it's this kind of, <laughs> it, it, you know, fake confident culture, and, and sometimes it, women could do it too. And and we've had fun. Of course. With like Molly Shannon in Talladega Nights or uh, Amy Adams in Vice. So we love that. That was clearly our riff. And then I think what happened around the time of the financial collapse is you started seeing the effects of that entitlement, and the effects were dark. <laughs> the effects right. were innocent, unarmed people being killed in the streets because of their skin color. Uh, my dad losing his home because of the banking collapse. Uh, uh. Friends of mine who couldn't, didn't have health insurance, having to sit through illnesses or create GoFundMe pages. And now you look at the ultimate version of it. It's people attacking the Capitol building, trying to overthrow an election extremists. And then the biggest of all the big stories, without exaggeration, empirically, the collapse of the livable atmosphere while we sit on our hands, mm -hmm. uh, kind of uh, getting knocked around by our distraction culture. So I think what it felt like allowed me to do comedy with this movie was that I was going to do comedy about what it feels like to be alive right now. Right. That was the consensus reality that I felt like, well, we can all kind of agree on this. I've talked to some family members I have and a few friends I have that are right-wingers or supported Trump. And that is something you can share with people. You can say, oh my God, how crazy is it now? And nine out of 10 people are going to say, yeah, I know what you mean. Maybe even like 9.6 out of 10 are going to say, <laughs> I know what you mean. So that was really what we tried to go after with this movie. And, and that's why I felt like I could, to some degree, return to more of a full-on comedy. Although, obviously, this movie's got some twists and turns that aren't like traditional comedies. But right. uh, for the <laughs> most part, it still operates like a laugh-driven comedy. What is the key to making satire of reality when reality itself feels like satire? That was why it, it's a great question, because I think we've seen the great satires. I mean, you look back in the 60s and 70s, I feel like there was a run of just legendary satires. If you look mm -hmm. at Dr. Strangelove and Network and a little bit earlier, Ace in the Hole. And, and I would even consider The Graduate a satire on white middle class life and success. Absolutely. Yeah. And there are a bunch of these movies and it, it kind of goes up to wag the dog. And then as our culture gets more extreme, you see it start to run out of gas a little bit. The guy I think who doesn't get enough credit is Mike Judge. I, I really feel like mm -hmm. off, office space, uh, extract and idiocracy are, are great satires about our modern Agreed. world. And, and then one of my favorites more recently is Death of Stalin, but those movies tend to play a little bit for smaller audience, maybe with the exception of Office Space, which became a big cult hit. But um, if you could say big and cult in the same sentence. Right. <laughs> so I felt like with this movie, we would have satirical undertones, but it was important that we get laughs. And, and I think a lot of times people think of satires as not having hard laughs. Mm -hmm. There could be some funny moments. So 
with this movie, we, we really wanted it to have laughs, to not be a wry smile kind of movie, uh, to be an actual laugh out loud driven comedy. And I think that's, that's a little bit the difference for some people is when you're laughing hard consistently, that it doesn't always feel like satire. Satires tend to feel a little bit more like wry smile movies, which is why I love Mike Judge's stuff. Cause Office Space has tons of laugh out loud moments in it, yet it's definitely a satire. So that was more the model we were targeting with this movie. Hmm, I love that. And as I understand it with Don't Look Up, I mean, you originally had the idea for this movie, I think back in 2018. Clearly a lot has happened between then and now, <laughs> which in a way helped sharpen the focus of the film. So yeah, I'd love if you can just sort of tell me about, about that, going from you know the idea, the original idea you had Seems like way back when. It's really not that long ago, but <laughs> everything feels... T- I feel like everyone's just kind of fallen out of space and time at this point. So. No exaggeration. <laughs> you, you just said 2018, and that shocked me because it feels <laughs> like 12 years ago. Right. Um, yeah, I, my friend David Sirota, who's a, a journalist, political activist, really firebrand, interesting guy, he and I were commiserating about the lack of mainstream media coverage about the biggest story in human history, uh, the climate crisis. And Sirota offhandedly made a comment about it's like an asteroid is headed towards Earth and it's going to kill us all and no one cares. And I just right away was like, that's the movie. That's it. And he's like, what do you mean? I go, that's just such a simple, big idea And it riffs on something we're all very familiar with, these end-of-the-world movies, whether they're Marvel, whether they're Michael Bay, whatever they are. There's a lot of these movies where the word Earth is in jeopardy. It goes all the way back to Jaws. Um, uh, You can go back to movies in the 60s. What's that one? A a Day at the Beach, A Day on the Mm. Beach. Um, uh, Anyway, lots and lots of great movies, The Twilight Zone. And I just felt like, that's what I wanted to feel at that point. I wanted to be able to laugh, to have some playfulness rather than just be hammered by a movie rather because there's so much information out there, which is so dire about the climate. Mm-hmm. And I just think if you're laughing, even during dark circumstances, it means you have some perspective. It means you at any time you can you know, smile or, or make a joke. It means you're somewhat in the game. Uh, And then on a more base level, I just felt like I just wanted to laugh. I wanted to do more of a laugh-driven comedy. I'd just done Vice, which is easily the darkest movie I've ever been involved in. And then The Big Short, which was a little more funny, but still pretty dark. And and I just felt like I wanted to laugh uh, and kind of let my hands go, to use a, a boxing term, um and and let some laughs fly so yeah it was that idea and that was it it was on and little did i or my producers kevin massick stacy robert Steele, or david sirota know that a giant once every 100 to 200 year pandemic was rolling (laughs) over the horizon line when i wrote the script we're going to take a quick break and when we're back Adam explains the creative freedom he found in deconstructing the disaster movie genre. First, the bad news. 
SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations, so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. One thing I love about the movie is that, I mean, you take shots at everyone. I mean, government government officials, the media, billionaire executives, and you certainly had a top-tier cast to play all these parts. And so when you think about the more ridiculous out-there characters in this movie, is there one in particular that you found the most compelling to develop and create? Because I have my favorite out of sort of the ridiculous bunch, but I want you to go first. I mean, it, it, we really did make an effort to hit the whole spectrum of American and to some degree the world, uh, the, the whole spectrum of public personas from, like you said, tech billionaires to media personalities. And we take shots at the, you know, corporate media like CNN, MSNBC. Mm-hmm. We take shots at Fox. We take shots at Bill. We even have a beat in there where we make fun of ourselves, Hollywood. And so that, that was a big part of it. The character that's most interesting to me because She's a little bit of a cartoon, but then she is a real person and she probably strides the line between the two more than anyone is uh, Brie Avante, Kate Blanchett's character. Adam, you are you looking at my paper? Because I, I had that down. That was the one that was the character that I found most interesting right? in the film. I, I <laughs> love that character and it doesn't hurt that you have one of the great actors of I our mean... generation playing it. But she did such a masterful job of making that character flesh and blood, yet terrifying and larger than life like some of these people really are i mean if you bomb around manhattan and go have drinks after all the news shows wrap you're gonna bump into someone like that and uh i just loved it i i I loved all the characters and and i thought this is me praising the actors not my own movie i just thought all the actors did a tremendous job i mean what tyler perry did with her co-host Jack Bremer. I mean, it was like they'd been together for 12 years. It was unbelievable. But yeah, uh, Brie Avante, that's, that's a particular favorite. Yeah, I agree. Because I feel like there, I, I like the beat of, cause, not to say that these, because obviously the actors bring such nuance to all these characters, but, you know, I feel like we got a really good sense of, you know, who, uh, who President Orlean is played by Meryl Streep. We got a good sense of, you know, Mark Rylance's character, um, you know, Peter Isherwell. But like Brie felt there's like moments where she you can see that humanity in her and you can see behind the really fake teeth, which what's up with the fake teeth? (laughs) (laughs) Between her and Mark Rylance, I was like, there's a theme here of fake teeth. Well, I mean, you know, if you're gonna be on a if you're gonna be on the daily rip. Your teeth got to look good. And and our theory behind Peter Isherwell was always that he's very into anti-aging. So I actually mm. don't think he has fake teeth. I think he had teeth uh, implants, implants yeah. or, but not implants with the metal rods. I think he had a young person's teeth actually put into his mouth. 
I think that's what he did. I think he had like a 16-year-old auto accident victim's teeth put into his mouth. <laughs> I feel like that checks out completely. <laughs> oh, my God. And, you know, I know you've classified Don't Look Up as an absurdist comedy, which is completely fair, obviously. I mean, when people watch the movie, they're going to understand. But how do you see this movie in the context of, you know, action disaster movies, like the end of the world movies? Because it's, yeah, I... I Again, I have a thought on this, but I'm going to let you go first. <laughs> well, I mean, that goes back to what we were talking about when we were talking about, like, where is comedy, where is culture, and we're sort of caught between these two eras. So I'm really inspired by recent films that have played with genre, and I do think that we're living in a time that defies genre. So a movie like Get Out, mm. which is so brilliant, but I don't know what to call that that's a satire horror thriller comedy um you look at a movie like kung fu hustle which i worship it's like a living cartoon love story and and so i'm definitely drawn to sort of that point at which something is hard to define so the whole time we were making this movie we kept joking about how would you categorize it and the closest we came up with was it's like if it's a mad, 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 mad world was made by Lars von Trier. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so glad you brought him up because Melancholy is like, well, I love that movie. And I love it because it's, you know, it's a disaster movie, end of the world movie, but it was on such a human scale. It wasn't like, you know, oh, we're trying to rush out to figure out how to how to solve this. It was just like. It, this is going to happen, and this and this this family in this sort of remote part of the world is just sort of grappling with it. But with Don't Look Up, what I found interesting is that we as the audience have been conditioned to feel that the climax of a disaster movie is when everyone puts their heads together and figures out a solution and the day is saved. And there is that moment in Don't Look Up where the government finally decides to act and the mission to destroy the comet before impact is underway. But then, as we see, it's not a huge spoiler that, you know, the mission is, is aborted. And from there, everything just felt like a slow crawl towards doom, which is just like, which made me, so as, like, as like a fan of, you know, just all kinds of movies, but I love, you know, end of the world disaster movies. I was just like, what do I do with this feeling? Like, I was like, you know, I was like, I've got, I actually checked my phone. I was like, how much longer is this movie? Because like, I thought this was going to be toward the end. So that's why I asked, because it was such an interesting kind of, it almost like subverted expectations and then that disaster genre. Um, it, it, because... it was such a freeing feeling knowing that I didn't have to do the usual three chord progression right. ending that you always do. And, and this is not, giving anything away it's not a traditional ending as you could tell from our conversation (laughs) but i don't think what we're saying gives anything away about it but the fact that i knew that i didn't have to click into that michael bay marvel movie or you know for older people towering inferno uh ending was so freeing so some of my favorite scenes in the movie are during that stretch because we sort of throw off the Sid Field, you know, the famous screenwriting mm-hmm. uh, instructor and author. Uh, we throw off the the Sid Field exoskeleton, and the movie gets to just operate with this level of freedom that was just a, an absolute joy to write and a, and a film. I love that. And so, I mean, what does a film like Don't Look Up mean for you at this point in your career? 
it's funny. I don't think of it in terms of like career or where I, it, it really, the movie felt like such a visceral, emotional experience for myself, the cast, the crew, that all of us sort of spoke of it just in the present tense about mm. how fortunate we were to be able to make this movie and to process the feelings that we were having through something like this. We just felt lucky. Probably a, a, an amazing musician was able to have this during uh, the pandemic or during the pandemic. That sounds like it's past tense. During these times, <laughs> a lot of people did it through baking. There were people painting. And we just felt like, how lucky are we that we get to get together with these talented people and laugh and play out feelings and sort of process it. So that was the way I'll always think of this movie is just the experience of making it is, is almost the same thing as releasing it. And I don't know if I've ever had that before where the difference between the two is so thin. So I have no idea what it means as far as the arc of what else I'll do in the future or what it means at anything. But I, I just ultimately am so grateful for these uh, amazing actors and Jonah Hill improvising every day and making me laugh and Meryl Streep just <laughs> killing it and also improvising and and Lena Sanger and our DP just these people it, it, the whole thing just feels like an experience even though we're talking about a movie that's finished I don't, I don't know if that quite makes any sense but it absolutely does yeah that's as close as I have to an answer to that question <laughs> no I I can totally see that I mean I'm sure it did feel like an experience, like with the cast alone, because I mean, it's just, it's such a stacked cast. And I know that, you know, that's par for the course for a lot of your films, but this one in particular was just like, geez, just so many A-listers. But, you know, because this movie obviously had such a huge scope <laughs> um, and a lot going on in it. I mean, so was there any, was there any particular creative challenge you had in making this film? Well, the big one is probably an obvious one, which was, how do you populate the world during a pandemic? Mm. Uh, so extras, uh, crowds, uh, you know, street scenes. Uh, how do you do that? Mm. And during a time where we were filming in Boston, the streets were without exaggeration empty. I mean, it was like 28 days later. Uh, you'd see occasionally you'd see people walk by. And fortunately, we're living in the golden age of VFX and CG. So our VFX supervisors, Raymond and Dion, who are incredible, they just did amazing things with creating crowds in, wow. in, in scenes, creating deep crowds. So we were able to quarantine a certain amount of extras uh, and test them every single day so that they were safe. So you would have foreground extras, but you couldn't have background extras. And they're so good now with CG. We went in later and we just put in crowds in the background. We put in cars uh, in the case of one a particular musical scene featuring uh, Ariana Grande and Kid Cudi, we were able to fill Wembley Stadium in a way that looks very real. You could have fooled me. Listen, that, that, that was seamless CGI work. So bravo to you and the whole team. But yeah, without giving anything away, because I, I really do want people to uh, to kind of experience the ending, but I have to say the ending was probably my favorite part of the movie. And is that how you saw it from the beginning? 
That was the ending. Mm -hmm. That was the ending I wrote when I wrote the first draft. The only part that changed, and I'll see if I can say this without giving anything away, was Timothy Chalamet's character, Yule. Mm -hmm. I love Yule. He's basically (laughs) an evangelical shoplifting skate punk. (laughs) And there was a discovery that happened at a certain point with uh, one of our co-producers, Ron Suskind, and Timothy himself. Timothy was sort of talking about the character saying, you know, there's not quite, it's something missing with this character. And my Ron Suskind, who's a journalist and and produces on movies, said to me, well, where is faith Mm -hmm. in the end of this movie? And he wasn't talking about faith in a specific denominational way. He wasn't talking about, you know, Northeast Presbyterian Baptist or any kind of, he meant real all the way down to your toes faith mm-hmm. and i realized that was yule mm. that's what yule's going to bring to this movie so that was a later discovery that i think really brought the whole ending together i mean the structure of the ending was always written that way but the discovery of what yule's character was bringing to the movie was a major breakthrough yeah Oh, I love that. Yeah, and the, the structure was really fantastic. You see that sort of uh, dichotomy of uh, two side, how two sides are kind of <laughs> handling uh, the, 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 the end of the world. But one thing that I always love to ask my guests is, you know, how have you come to define creativity at this point in your career? I would say creativity... Just if if I'm going to put it in the rawest, simplest terms for me is always some sort of hitch or toehold of inspiration. Mm. And it can be really small and it can sometimes happen in an instant. Sometimes it builds over months, but there's a moment where you realize you have a seed that you have something that's so rich and full of possibilities that I feel like I could write 500 pages on it. Mm. And that's always when I know I've got something that's exciting when it feels endless. Uh, The example I always give is the first draft of Step Brothers that Will Ferrell and I wrote together (laughs) was 190 pages long. Oh my God. (laughs) Which is insane (laughs) and easily could have been 240. We had to trim it to get to 190. (laughs) And we were laughing because we realized we could have written 500 pages. And and you want that to be, that's the toehold. That's the moment, the seed that I'm looking for is I could write this for the next 10 years. Mm. And and so whatever movie, whatever show I'm working on, directing, writing, that's always the feeling I want that I can't wait to get at this. I want to live in this world for as long as possible. And there's no more exciting feeling. And and, and that can translate. uh, I'm a, a, a... to call myself a musician is not accurate, but I love music and I know a couple chords, but my wife and daughters are actually skilled musicians and Nick Bertel comes and hangs out. And I love when people just improvise with music and you find that simple little phrase that you build and mm-hmm. build on. And, and I think it applies to just about anything. It applies to writing a short story, poetry, singing, uh, designing fashion, I'm sure. And it's that feeling of, oh, this could go on forever. I love it so much and I'm so intrigued by it. Thank you for your time, Adam. I really appreciate it. 
My absolute pleasure. Seriously, man. Thanks for having me on. As always, thank you so much for listening to Creative Conversation. Make sure you rate, comment, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I'll see you next week.